This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. I just wanted to prepare somebody 
today as we uh, embark on, I thought, last week's subject uh, where we were talking about the nuances of UX research. I thought I was done with that. Uh, I'm going to continue just for today only uh, because a lot of the things I talked about with that subject focused on the nuances of UX research, but it was really a distance from the work itself. So it hit me as I as I shared that podcast, as it was published, and as people started to tap into it, I started thinking, you know what? There are more nuances that I could cover, and I felt it was really important to get a little bit closer to the work and to play catch up for those who haven't heard last week's episode yet. UX research is an arena that a lot of people want to be a part of. It's the hottest segment, if you will, associated with the discipline of user experience, UX research. Uh, You talk to a lot of people, they say they want to be in UX, and they will specifically say that they want to be researchers. But what I've also found, while this people are predominantly uh, of all the different types of UX that they could get into where research seems to be the big thing. It's also interesting that these people don't really understand. A lot of them don't really understand what they're opting into. They don't really understand what type of work needs to be done. And they don't understand the nuances associated with the work. And so when you are getting involved, whether it's research or any other aspect of UX, if you don't understand the, the whole um, um, ecosphere, for lack of a better word at the moment, associated with research, you could get blindsided. You could find out that it's not really for you. Um, you could find yourself scratching your head and trying to figure out which way is up because you thought that it was one thing, but it's really something else. And, and for some who actually invest financially to get involved in UX research, taking courses or maybe getting a degree or whatever it might be only to find out that it's not what you thought it was. I'm all about helping people to be well-rounded. I'm I'm all about helping people to not be blindsided. I'm all about helping people to be informed. So for those of you specifically that are looking to get into UX research, we're giving you this information so that you can go, Oh, So that's a part of it as well. That's the mindset that we want people to have. Are we trying to scare you? No. But if you get scared, it's not like that's an incorrect response. Whatever it does, that that, that, whatever it takes to wake you up so that you understand exactly what you're getting into so that you can count the cost and then prepare yourselves the right way so that you, when something happens, you're not blindsided. When something happens, you're not shocked. When something happens, you don't throw your hands up. When something happens, you go, ah, they told me about that, and now I'm prepared for it. Ah, somebody warned me that this was the type of thing that we needed to be ready to do, and I feel I'm better equipped now. You're going to be further down the road than people who sort of blue sky it, uh, people who uh, who are... They think that when you talk about this type of stuff that you're being a Debbie Downer, uh, which is just, that's just, Debbie Downer is the child of toxic positivity. So you don't want to be a part of that because you will not be prepared. So all that said, I wanted to sort of onboard those of you that are listening for the first time. 
And I sort of want to give a little slight recap of what we did last week. Let's talk about the nuances of UX research, but this time we're going to stick close to the work itself. So as we embark on this part two, if you will, I'm going to pick up by sort of reiterating something. I, I talked a little bit about people. You see this stuff on whether it's Reddit, LinkedIn, or whatever it is. You'll always see these people who will post like an A and a B. They'll, they'll post a couple of illustrations and they'll say, which one do you like better, A or B? And it'll be two variations of a design. It's almost like a, a poor man's A-B test in a sense when, when, you, when you really think about it. And a lot of these people claim that when they're doing it, they claim that they're doing research. Now, one of the things is that is misrepresenting what UX research really is. Number one, there are, uh, there's a, a book on the market, one of my favorite books on the market that talks about different aspects of UX research, and it counts 125 different elements. Now, there are methods, methodologies, there are techniques, there are deliverables, there are artifacts. All of these things are connected to UX research. Now, if all of these things are associated with UX research, and then these people just put two drawings up and say, which one do you like better? And claim that that's research. Research is never that simple. Research is never that cut and dry. Research has to be designed. It usually involves several different aspects, whether they're questions, tasks, things of that nature, but it's never just one thing. Not really. It can be in some settings if you're just trying to answer one question, but when you talk about UX research, that's, that is a very rare instance where there's just this one thing. And here's the other part, the fallout of this. When someone sees this, hey, I'm doing research, which one do you like better, A or B? That's one of the reasons that a lot of people think that they want to get into UX research because they see these things, assume that that's what UX research is, figure that they can do that as well and so then they try to opt in so these people are they're hurting the discipline from several perspectives today and it is critically important that we understand that when we're when we do the work when we talk about the work all of these different aspects associated with ux it's critical to understand and know we are representatives we are ambassadors of the work, this thing that we call UX, we're ambassadors of it, and everything we do and don't do serves as a representation, especially when the people that we are engaging with don't really have very much knowledge. And so the things that we do paint pictures, and it, it, it sort of it is letting people know, hey, this is what UX is. So if you're wrong, if you're incorrect, if you're misrepresenting UX, and you do something like that, you're leading someone down the wrong street. And so we cannot be negligent in our representations of UX, and we must understand that everything that we do is a representation of the discipline. So let, let's be better than that. And, and by the way, the book 
that I'm making reference to. I didn't mention it a couple moments ago, and I, I got to have the reference here. The book is called Universal Methods of Design. Uh, there's an older edition that talks about 100 ways to research complex problems, develop innovative ideas, and design effective solutions. And they're all focusing on research. Uh, and the newest edition talks about 125 of these same factors. So there's a lot of stuff. Research, UX is bigger than people think it is, and UX research is bigger than people think it is. So let's get into a little bit, uh, a list, if you will, of the different nuances. So I'm not going to cover these in great detail. I just want to put them on your radar. I want I want everybody to understand what these things are so that we can realize that UX research is not just a notion. It's not something that you can just up and just do. It's going to require a little bit more. And I will repeat one thing I said last week. The more a person knows about UX as a whole, the better equipped an individual will be to bring value in their research and the better equipped a person will be to execute better research. Because if you don't understand information architecture and you try to do research, your research is going to fall short. If you don't understand certain things or very much about usability and heuristics, that's going to detrimentally impact that lack of knowledge, that lack of, of reference, the, the, the shortage of the, the points of reference. That's going to keep a person from, from, from embedding the associated components into the research. If a person doesn't know anything about interface design, especially as it comes uh, to or when it comes to the interaction design principles, because there is no UI without interaction design principles, not a good one. But when you know all of these things, you can factor these into your research, the design of your research, and now you're better equipped to obtain trustworthy, reliable, and actionable data, which is the product. That's what's supposed to come out of research. So here are your official, if you will, uh, nuances that I wanted to cover today. Uh, number one, you need to learn that there is an art to screening. Now, someone is saying, what is screening? Well, you can't just go and just have anybody participate in your research. You have to make sure, in order to make sure that you are going to obtain trustworthy, actionable, reliable data, you have to make sure that the right people are participating in your research. If you do not, that takes away the credibility of the data that you're gathering. And a lot of times the clients and the stakeholders have no idea of whether or not someone has the right people participating in the research. So you need to make sure that you are screening people, that you're you're trying to make sure that, I mean, for example, if you're trying to do research on an e-commerce platform and you're trying to make sure that you've designed it the right way, uh, you could have people that don't spend a lot of time shopping online, participating, but if that's the bulk of the folks involved in the study, that's not a good idea. You really want to make sure that you're screening folks, that people who are the best people for something like that are people who shop online regularly. Bring a few people in it so you can get perspectives of some newbies to shopping online. But the the bigger buck, uh, the, 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 the 
the greater good is going to come out of your research if you include people that are already part of that part of that arena, part of that that group of folks that love shopping online because now you can tap into their points of reference and if there's a pain point or something that they didn't expect, something that's misleading, something that's an issue, they're more likely to give you input about that. Uh, especially if you're doing it from a qualitative perspective, they're more likely to give you the data you're looking for as opposed to people who are really not familiar with e-commerce at all. So, so when you screen people up front, it'll keep you from including the wrong people. So again, you want to do research? Well, you have to be ready to design screening mechanisms so that the right people are there. It's not just about do you like A or B? Because And when people do that on LinkedIn, they're asking everybody that. And, and not only uh, are they including everybody, which no research project pretty much should ever include everybody, when they do that, it's just, it's just really silly. So, uh, and it's very unprofessional. It's very amateurish. And you don't want to do that. Next, patience. The nuance of patience. Uh, and when I say patience, I'm focusing on one thing specifically. Imagine, if you will, somebody is conducting research. And as they're conducting research, they ask a person to perform a particular task. We've all seen it. The person goes to perform the task, and as they go to perform the task, they don't do what the person who's leading the research thought they would do, expect that they would do. Maybe they don't do what you would like them to do. And then there are a lot of people who are in research, who want to be in research, who find themselves in this very same exact situation only to then get frustrated, they're impatient with the participant, and then they start helping. They start to make suggestions. They become visibly and, and, and obviously frustrated, which also when the participant sees that, that lack of patience being demonstrated, they actually shift. And they may not explain to you that they're impacted by the way that that person is behaving but it will show in the way that they behave. And so these things then create problems for the person that's doing the research. And again, it starts to taint the data. If you're going to be a UX researcher, you must be patient. And if it takes a while for the person to do, to finish the task or do a particular thing, you just sit there and you wait on them and you comfort and let them know, hey, no rush, go ahead, take your time, whatever it might be, but you... Do not make suggestions. You do not give them leading uh, or introduce leading, uh, um, leading terms or questions or statements trying to trigger biases or things of that nature. We need to be careful with things like that. So again, if you want to be a UX researcher, you have to be patient. That makes me think about one that's really closely related to that, and that's that of moderating. Everybody is not good at moderating. So if you if you are going to be involved and you're going to be leading the research, you need to be a good moderator. You need to learn how to talk to folks. You need to learn how to set expectations. You need to learn how to guide. And so this also makes me think about another component. So I'll rope this one back in. And that's the issue of research design. We talked about it a bit last week. If you're going to be a UX researcher, you need to learn how to design. You just don't run in and say, 
borrowing from our earlier example again, you don't just come in and say, hey, which one do you like, A or B? There's no design that goes into that, is there? Absolutely none. And so because of that, uh, it just shows how amateurish and how out of place that is. All excellent and exemplary research is designed. It must be structured properly. You must understand. Matter of fact, a lot of times I've designed research and I encourage people to do things like this. What do you, what data do you know you need to get that is going to inform your initiative? And you design backwards. If you know that you need A, B, C, D, and E, then you can set up tasks. You can ask closed and open-ended questions. You can do all types of things, all of which help you to obtain information and inform about A, B, C, D, and E. And then that way, uh, you're not just winging it and you're not asking things, finding out that you're not really answering A, B, C, D, and E. And so now you've got an issue. So you must design your research. So all of these things bring up the next point, and it's that of research strategy. Uh, we have to decide, I mentioned the 125 different methods, methodologies, deliverables, artifacts, techniques, all of these different things that you have access to as a UX researcher, you have to decide which of these will are best suited for the initiative at hand. You can't just reach into a, a, a bag and just pull one out. Okay, uh, we're going to go with card sorting on this. No, we have to understand based on what we're trying to accomplish, based on the data we're trying to obtain, which of the available techniques, which of the available methods, methodologies, which of these things will be best for what it is that we're trying to do. Then you look at what's available to you and then you select the right methods, methodologies, techniques, and so on. And then you move forward. That's the strategy part of research. So again, it's not just do you like A or B. Is that if, if you need to understand whether design A or B is better, then go and design something that helps you to understand. Matter of fact, you don't even ask users which one they like. You ask them to perform tasks and then the data that comes out of that research lets you know whether A or B is better. Don't ask them. That's not how we find out uh, which, the, which one is the right one to use at all, which also makes me think about another aspect, another nuance, and it is that of triangulation, which is something that a lot of people don't know about. Use, again, the same example that we have. You're, you're trying to figure out which design is better, A or B. And could you ask people what impacts them or, or which one appeals to them the most first? Uh, it's possible. Could you do a first click test? Yeah, you could. But if you're really trying to find out, don't just subject participants to one method. You actually will use two or three methods, all subjecting people to, to different types of approaches that are all geared around validating and revalidating what's going on. That's really what triangulation is about. It's about using multiple methods to, to help to foster better data quality and making sure that these things are accurate, make sure, making sure that your findings 
are are trustworthy and making sure that you're offsetting or minimizing and eliminating any bias based on how people were exposed to what you're conducting research on, maybe through one of the methods, do it again. You did it over here with this method. Okay, now go do it again. And then you're validating things and you can now assure people that the findings are accurate because we were able to validate it based on these two or three approaches that we did. So triangulation is key. And a bunch of people who want to be in research know nothing about triangulation, which is fine, but just know that you have to learn about it. If you don't know, don't beat yourself up. I'm not beating you up. Don't beat yourself up. But no one understand that understanding about triangulation is key. Here's another one. Let's say that you're conducting the research and the person makes a statement. Say you're doing interviews or you're doing contextual inquiry where you're going through, you're watching the person work and you're asking questions. Probing is a skill that has to be developed. Knowing what questions to ask and when, and they may not be on your script. Yes, there are scripts that are part of designing research. And so when you're trying to to understand, trying to get inside the head of the participant, they may say or do something that sparks another question so that you can delve deeper, so that you can validate, so you can get a greater understanding of what's going on. So if you want to be in research, you're going to need to learn how and when to probe. Now, let's say you do all of this work. You do all of this, all of these fantastic things, and you you have all these all this great data, and now it's time to report out. It is important that people develop the skill. Storytelling is a part of it. You need to know how to put together a uh, a report that is easy to partake of. And, and, and you don't want to be one of those people that I'm going to do all this research and I'm going to have 106 pages. Uh, did you remember to do an executive summary? I mean, did you think about doing a three-minute video that just explains all of the high points? Did you do a presentation but know that there's always somebody that doesn't attend and did you come up with a way for them to partake of what you presented in a way that is easy for them to digest? And don't forget, you must speak the language of the clients and the stakeholders, not just, don't just give it to them in UX language, because a lot of times people will not understand that. And it doesn't work. But we need to be succinct. We need to be clear. We need to speak in ways that people can understand. And we need to remember, when you're talking to C-level people, they don't have a lot of time. So learning how to say things quickly, learning how to say things succinctly, and at the same time, making sure that you're communicating with very high levels of, of effectiveness. These are also skills that we need to develop and they are part of and should be part of the UX researchers toolbox. Last, don't be a research aristocrat. Please don't be one of those people that assume that everybody has support for research. Uh, Everybody does not. Don't assume that everybody has the luxury of executing the entire research life cycle. That doesn't always happen. And folks, this is a real problem when people are recruiting researchers and then they're looking for somebody who's 
doing everything that your company is doing. Well, everybody doesn't have that. Everybody doesn't have that luxury. So you want to make sure, don't be a research aristocrat. And a lot of people are. They're heading down that 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 road where they they're able to operate at the highest levels of maturity when it comes to executing proper research, but everybody doesn't. So don't allow yourself to go there because it is just it's it's just counterproductive. So that though that's the list, the nuance for today. And I'll give you a couple things just as addendums to wrap up this subject. First, you want to be aware that everybody doesn't get, again, to the aristocrat statement, every company doesn't support UX research. Every client doesn't, every stakeholder doesn't, every C-suite person does not support research. And so it's important, especially when you're leaving one company where maybe they did and you're going to another and you find that there's a lack of support for research and there's a lot of pushing back, a, a lot of hostility in some cases with regard to research, you're going to need to have a strategy on how you're going to, to drive obtaining of data that supports the work. <laughs> and so, because uh, it, it could really floor you when, if you find this out, because you think, you we assume sometimes that people embrace research and they don't. So uh, please no one understand that. That's like the flip side of, of the aristocrat component. And it actually is when somebody is a research aristocrat, um, they're the people that are going to be most floored when they come into contact with that. This is a reality, folks. This is something that's going on out there. So no sense in getting all flustered about it. You're going to need to pivot so that you can drive the, the, the UX work as best you can. And the last thing I want to leave you with today is that part of all of this, uh, a lot of times, UX research needs some types of solutions. You're going to have to have a vendor that you're going to work with that's going to help drive the work that you do. So vendor management is is something that is, it's on the outskirts. It's something that a lot of people don't think about or they take for granted. You're going to have to develop relationships. You're going to have to learn what these different companies have to offer. You may come into a situation where you're evaluating what the current resources are and maybe you need to look at some others. So there are a lot of things that uh, that come up with regard to vendor management. And so I just want people to make sure you have this on your radar. I mean, usertesting.com, userzoom, usability hub, try my UI, session cam, Hotjar, Full Story, Pendo, Optimal Workshop. There are so many different companies out here that have something to offer. Some companies are willing to pay. Some companies are not. You could bring a proposal to get a license for one of these uh, different vendors. And when they see the, the your, your leadership sees how much some of these costs, they're just going to look at you like you're crazy. And you're thinking, well, we, we really need this. And then they're thinking, uh, not at that price, we don't. So it really can be a challenge. And But whether the company approves of it or not, it's our responsibility because vendor management for any related to any UX solutions is our responsibility. So we need to make sure that we are learning about these folks, that we're talking to these folks, that we are building relationships with these folks, and that we are putting ourselves in a position 
to always be ready to prescribe the absolute best solution for whatever fits in our organization. So vendor management is key. Yeah, consider all those shout outs. And I'm not sponsored by any of these people. I forgot to mention Toby, T-O-B-I-I. A lot of folks out there have a lot of good solutions. Find out which ones best support what you're doing from a research perspective and go from there. All right, folks, that's it. All of these things, these are all nuances, but as I said, these are nuances of UX research that are more closely related to the work where last week I was talking about it from a different perspective. So don't be blindsided by things happening in UX research. It's a fun thing. I Research is probably my favorite part of UX work because I love the discovery. I love the different things, especially when, when participants do something nobody expected and now you've got this fantastic data that you can use to drive what you're doing and, and achieve fantastic results it's it's a beautiful thing it's a rewarding thing but don't forget the nuances because if you focus on the work and you don't understand the nuances you are not going to be prepared and you're going to fall short i hope you understand it today and i hope you value what we're sharing with you so folks that is all the time that we have for today thank you for joining us and join us again next time and tell other folks about the podcast but until next time this is your host darren hood of the world of ux signing off happy uxing everybody thanks for joining us for this session of cx of m radio Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.